So choose to believe. Choose to say, you know what? I am going to choose faith. Faith isn't something you have or you don't have. Dang it, I was in the wrong line when they passed faith out. No, faith is something that can develop and it can grow. Choose to believe and then turn to others who can help you on that belief journey. Turn to others. You are part of a network of friends that extends internationally. Turn to others via internet or in person and say, I need help. How did you gain and strengthen your testimony? How can you help me? Christians versus Pharisees, choosing sides and how to fight for them in the Mormon Civil War. Bradgate, what the church must learn from the fall and attempted rehabilitation of Brad Wilcox. Episode 10C, Sunderland, a sensible apologist and swindling the saints. Welcome back to the second of three episodes within a larger exploration of the Brad Wilcox phenomenon and debacle in which I am analysing the online COVID lockdown fireside on the 13th of September 2020 for the Sunderland England stake that Brad Wilcox starred in with a particular focus on the journey and questions of LDS teenagers. In this episode, we will cleanse our palate a bit from the relentless gaslighting of general authorities by spending some time enjoying sensible analysis, wisdom, and a ludicrous lie from the fireside, another Mormon celebrity, the lovely historian Patrick Mason, presented online to Sunderland Stake during the COVID lockdown as a compare and contrast to Brad's. We will hear some blunt home truths regarding what the FBI thinks of the rampant affinity fraud in Mormon communities and lots of other fascinating components of the roller coaster ride of today's LDS Mormonism. But first, there is some actually historic news hot off the press from here in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland rather than the non-events of disappointing and mostly boring broadcasts or visits here by apostles that keep being called historic by the church's propaganda machine when they really aren't. Last week in England's Midlands, the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution, there was a special tri-stake conference for the Coventry, Birmingham and Litchfield Stakes that the Britvenger podcasters assembled to discuss on Priesthood Dispatches and Nemo the Mormon's YouTube channels. Birmingham Stake lost 40% of its active membership in the last 10 years before COVID. Litchfield Stake lost 31% of theirs and apparently has three wards like mine struggling to get more than 30 people to church on a Sunday so all the indicators were pointing to a major consolidation of congregations and perhaps the closing of the Litchfield stake. It turned out our predictions were correct. The Litchfield stake is the first of the 46 in the British Isles to be closed, 
in all of our history. It is to be merged with Birmingham Stake, and today they announced the closure of three of Litchfield's wards, along with two of their chapels, we presume. Birmingham, or to be specific, it's looking like Solihull, is the location of one of dozens of new temples President Nelson has announced for areas with hardly any members left in them. Our first stake closure, sold to the local members as a wonderful opportunity for strength and growth, as if it represents progress by the grinning area authorities is another major milestone of decline in my country, as the collapse of active membership accelerates. After they closed the England-London-South mission I live in a couple of years ago, and active membership nationally appears to have fallen from 14% before Covid to 11% after it. News has just come in from the data watchers in Reddit that the same has happened for the church as a whole. For the first time in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, in the last six months there has been no net increase in the number of congregations. On the 10th of June 2022, the Church Directory of Organisations and Leaders reported that in the whole world we gained six new wards and lost six branches and a district but eight new stakes were created, apparently continuing the recent pattern of splitting stakes into new stakes with fewer wards in them to maintain the illusion of growth. If, as the church claims, it is growing like topsy in Africa, what does this say about how many wards and stakes are being closed elsewhere that the net gain in congregations for the last six months is zero. And what does it say about the reality of collapse? That in episode 10b we heard Susan Bednar's husband obfuscating when he answered the National Press Club reporter's question about how the LDS Church can still claim to be one of the fastest growing when the percentage of people identifying as members of it has been falling for a decade in the USA and he lied that he doesn't know the membership and attendance numbers. This may be something of an aftershock from Covid, as there will be a time lag regarding creating and closing congregations. But during the Covid years 2020 and 2021, there was a net increase of 139 congregations. So this really isn't looking good. I think it's pretty safe to say this is the tipping point the data has been pointing to and I and others have been predicting for a long time now. The active membership of the church has been in freefall for many years now but the church has masked it by only talking about and publishing total membership and congregation data to imply steady growth. Now reality is catching up even with those misleading data points and from here onwards, the loss of congregations as they shrink and get closed or consolidated with their neighbours is going to increasingly outnumber the completely new ones created because of actual growth. In his fireside with the Sunderland stake, Brad Wilcox waxed lyrical about how on his mission in Japan, his son was having great success 
because the Book of Mormon brings Asian people with no Christian heritage to Christ. Japan just lost three of its stakes. Throwing a temple at the Midlands and creating a more localised Europe-North area of the British Isles and Scandinavia and last Halloween's British rescue by three apostles and a church historian that I will get to when I've finished with Bradgate have, I fear, all come too late to save the British goose that laid the golden eggs of the American church's survival in its early pioneering years. We came to their rescue at a crucial moment for the survival of the church in America, or, to be historically accurate, Mexico, since Salt Lake City was Mexican when the Mormon refugees arrived there in the 1840s, but they are spectacularly failing to come to ours. It is far too late, unless they are willing to radically reform themselves and their teachings and practices. Sunderland's stake was one of only four out of 46 in the British Isles that grew in the last decade by a staggering uh, 1.27%, or to be specific, eight people. Despite this dazzling success, their leader acknowledged during his dialogue with Brad Wilcox that nearly half of their youth are already inactive. But the fact that they are holding their own somewhat is surely down to his willingness to engage with the challenges threatening his people's testimonies head on and rally a star-studded cast of LDS apologists and forward thinkers to speak to his flock and discuss difficult things. I am a big fan of Patrick Mason, the LDS historian and author who I've quoted before, and who had the decency to actually cry when Jane and Alana of 21st Century Saints interviewed him and described the pain the church leaders' errors and neglect have caused them. He is a gentle soul, trying to be realistic and positive. So I had a quick skim through his fireside with the Sunderland stake on YouTube. To my disappointment, but not my surprise, the bit I landed on randomly was, you guessed it, a blatant lie by someone who definitely, for sure, knows better. Patrick Mason was discussing the car crash in Mormonism between those who believe the prophets are infallible and what they declare to be the revealed truth, those who make the excuse that of course they aren't infallible and don't claim to be, and those who flip-flop between those opposite positions, usually to make excuses for the mistakes and crimes of dead prophets, while at the same time insisting that questioning something the current prophet is teaching or doing is faithless apostasy. This cognitive dissonance is the most all-pervasive and fundamental in the faith and trust crises and conflicts that break out between different church and family members in this civil war. Each side can find plenty of quotes by prophets and even scriptures to support both points of view, while of course it is very easy to discover which is correct. Any serious analysis of church history, past and present, throws up countless examples of LDS prophets being very wrong indeed, about fundamentally important and impactful things as they flounder around trapped in their own egos with no common consent accountability and restraints. 
to my great disappointment, Patrick ignored all that and said this. Uh, actually, no prophet of our church has ever taught the doctrine of prophetic infallibility. No scripture that we have has ever taught the, the doctrine of prophetic infallibility, quite the opposite. But culturally, for various reasons, I think we've adopted this notion that, that, uh, that, that, that at least functionally, we sometimes feel like that our leaders are infallible, even though they don't claim that for themselves and the scriptures don't claim that for them. In conclusion, a word about the 15 servants of God seated behind me. While the worldly say to the seers, see not, and to the prophets, prophesy not, the faithful are crowned with blessings from above, yea, and with commandments, not a few, and with revelations in their time. Not surprisingly, these men frequently become the lightning rods for those unhappy with the word of God as the prophets proclaim it. They don't realize that no prophecy of the scripture is to be of any private interpretation or the result of the will of man, but that holy men of God speak now as they are moved by the Holy Ghost. Like Paul, these men of God are not ashamed of the testimony of our Lord and are his prisoners in the sense that the doctrine they teach is not theirs but his that called them. Like Peter, they cannot but speak the things which they have seen and heard. I testify that the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve are good and honest men who love God and His children and who are loved by Him. Their words we should receive as if from the Lord's own mouth in all patience and faith. For by doing these things, the gates of hell shall not prevail against us, and the Lord God will disperse the powers of darkness from before us. No unhallowed hand can stop the work from progressing. It will march on triumphantly, with or without you or me. So choose ye this day whom you will serve. Don't be fooled or intimidated by the loud adversarial noises emanating from the great and spacious building. Their desperate decibels are no match for the serene influence of the still, small voice upon broken hearts and contrite spirits. I testify that Christ lives, that he is our Savior and Redeemer, and that he leads his church through the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, thus assuring that we are not tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. The selection of a prophet is made by the Lord himself. President Nelson's selection to serve as God's prophet was made long ago. The Lord's words to Jeremiah also apply to President Nelson. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. <clears throat> Only three years ago, Elder Nelson, at age 90, was fourth in seniority, with two of the three senior apostles being younger in age than he was. The Lord who controls life and death selects his prophet. While we sustain the prophet as the Lord's anointed, let it be clear that we worship only God, our Heavenly Father, and his divine Son. It is through the merits, the mercy, and the grace of our Savior Jesus Christ that we can one day enter again into their presence. 
But Jesus also taught an important truth about the servants he sends to us. He that receiveth you, he said, receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. A prophet is a watchman on the tower, protecting us from spiritual dangers we may not see. The Lord said to Ezekiel, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt hear the word from my mouth and warn them from me. We embrace President Nelson as we would have embraced Peter or Moses if we had lived in their day. God told Moses, I will be with thy mouth and teach thee what thou shalt say. We listen to the Lord's prophet with the faith that his words are from the Lord's own mouth. Is this blind faith? No, it is not. We each have a spiritual witness of the truthfulness of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By our own will and choice, we raised our hands this morning, declaring our desire to sustain the Lord's prophet with our confidence, faith, and prayers, and to follow his counsel. We have the privilege of, as Latter-day Saints to receive a personal witness that President Nelson's call is from God. Why are we so willing to follow the voice of the prophet? For those diligently seeking eternal life, the prophet's voice brings spiritual safety in very turbulent times. The seemingly endless array of information and opinion remind us of the scriptural warnings of being tossed to and fro, driven by the wind, and overcome by the cunning craftiness of those who lie in wait to deceive. Anchoring our souls to the Lord Jesus Christ requires listening to those he sends. Following the prophet in a world of commotion it's like being wrapped in a soothing, warm blanket on a freezing, cold day. We live in a world of reason, debate, argument, logic, and explanation. Questioning why is so positive in so many aspects of our lives, allowing the power of our intellect to guide a multitude of choices and decisions we face each day. But the Lord's voice often comes without explanation. When correction is needed, let's not delay. And don't be alarmed when the prophet's warning voice counters popular opinions of the day. The mocking fireballs of annoyed disbelievers are always hurled the moment the prophet begins to speak. As you are humble in following the counsel of the Lord's prophet, I promise you an added blessing of safety and peace. And don't be surprised if at times your personal views are not initially in harmony with the teachings of the Lord's prophet. These are moments of learning, of humility, when we go to our knees in prayer. We walk forward in faith, trusting in God, knowing that with time we will receive more spiritual clarity from our Heavenly Father. 
One prophet described the incomparable gift of the Savior as the will of the Son being swallowed up in the will of the Father. The surrender of our will to God's will is in fact not surrender at all, but the beginning of a glorious victory. Some will try to overly dissect the prophet's words, struggling to determine what is his prophetic voice and what is his personal opinion. In 1982, two years before being called as a general authority, Brother Russell M. Nelson said, I never ask myself, when does the prophet speak as a prophet and when does he not? My interest has been, how can I be more like him? And he added, my philosophy is to stop putting question marks behind the prophet's statements and put exclamation points instead. This is how a humble and spiritual man chose to order his life. Now, 36 years later, he is the Lord's prophet. Truth number four. The Lord Jesus Christ, whose church this is, appoints prophets and apostles to communicate his love and to teach his laws. The gospel of Jesus Christ is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Each of the Lord's apostles is in a position to observe and feel the love that Heavenly Father has for his children, particularly for those who are struggling. In doing so, sometimes we are accused of being uncaring as we teach the Father's requirements for exaltation in the celestial kingdom. But wouldn't it be far more uncaring for us not to tell the truth, not to teach what God has revealed? It is precisely because we do care deeply about all of God's children that we proclaim His truth. We may not always tell people what they want to hear. Prophets are rarely popular. <laughs> but we will always teach the truth. Recently, I spoke at a new Mission Presence seminar and counseled these leaders, keep the eyes of the mission on the leaders of the Church. We will not and cannot lead you astray. And as you teach your missionaries to focus their eyes on us, teach them to never follow those who think they know more about how to administer the affairs of the Church than Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus Christ do through the priesthood leaders who have the keys to preside. And finally, President Young reminded the saints, we are on the old ship Zion. God is at the helm and will stay there. All is right. Sing hallelujah, for the Lord is here. He dictates, guides, and directs. If the people will have implicit confidence in their God, never forsake their covenants nor their God, He will guide us right. 
Uh, actually, no prophet of our church has ever taught the doctrine of prophetic infallibility. No scripture that we have has ever taught the, the doctrine of prophetic infallibility, quite the opposite. But culturally, for various reasons, I think we've adopted this notion that, that, uh, that, that, that at least functionally, we sometimes feel like that our leaders are infallible, even though they don't claim that for themselves and the scriptures don't claim that for them. My episode six series about all the different manifestations of thought control in the church, not surprisingly, started to look like becoming endless, so I knocked it on the head. But I will get eventually to a new mini-series about the state of the church's favoured apologists and their tactics and fundamental self-contradictions, which I was going to finish the series six with. There is a lot of astonishing stuff to chew on there. This week, I stumbled across a recent Midnight Mormons episode titled Are Mormon Apologists Effective? in which Quaku and Cardin took their usual positions that all critics of the church are obsessed with breaking up families and convincing everyone that there is no such thing as good and evil, which I struggle to accept even they are ignorant enough to actually believe. Their opinion of today's leading LDS apologists was equally scathing, as they rightly pointed out that a faction of the more academic among them simply refuse to engage respectfully with ordinary people and only care about the opinions of a tiny rarefied community of equally qualified academics speaking academic ease with each other and dismissing everyone else as beneath them and how the audiences for their blogs and podcasts are therefore tiny and useless to the success of the church as a whole despite their extreme sense of smug self-importance. The Midnight Mormons condemned the rest of the LDS apologist communities for going soft, trying to play nicely with the critics and acknowledge the good points they make, when these desnat shock jockeys would rather they just stopped admitting anything is broken in the church and went into battle with uncompromising fundamentalist certainties. My main observation of why these apologists are failing is that they are at all times ludicrously reluctant to criticise the current leaders of the church at all, so they end up having to defend the indefensible, or just totally ignore the real problems those people are causing, or only refer to them very vaguely so they don't lose their incomes and get excommunicated, or they just flat out lie. Even the really nice ones, like Terrell and Fiona Givens and Patrick Mason, teach and insist that the church, or Mormonism, is their, and are, idealised fantasy version of it, while totally ignoring the reality that everything they are saying is completely contradicted by what the First Presidency are actually teaching and doing. But they are right to be afraid, I also preach that Christian Mormonism has the potential to be practically perfect in every way, as an inspiring ideal to be proud of. But because I also admit that the church's priesthood leaders are totally screwing it all up, I've been excommunicated. Well, they are still on the payroll, although BYU fired Fiona when she dared to mention somewhere that maybe the Holy Ghost is Heavenly Mother. 
This is total coriantuma, as we have all watched Henry B. Eyring teaching in April 2019 General Conference in his Power of Sustaining Faith talk that it is a sin we must repent of before Temple recommend interviews and conferences to speak or even think of any of our global or local leaders having, quote, human weakness, close quote, and only God is allowed to judge them. So every time a church member or apologist responds to something unpleasant a prophet or apostle did or taught as doctrine being mentioned by telling us to give them a break because they are just human, they are disobeying this member of the First Presidency and need to repent of saying or thinking that. But despite a member of the First Presidency condemning this as a sin, they have made this their number one go-to strategy for responding to people in faith and trust crisis. We have heard Dallin Oaks insisting over and over again that the prophets are infallible, even if it means throwing all the black people under the bus to bring back the idea that 150 years of institutional racist segregation was God's idea all along, because that many prophets cannot possibly have been wrong about this, and that loyal opposition to anything at all the prophets and revelators teach or make policy is simply not a real possibility in our religion. And he has recently followed through on this by making opposing policies as well as doctrines an offence requiring automatic discipline by your state presidency in the general handbook. And we have heard President Nelson repeatedly teaching, as he did when spinning reversing the 2015 November policy of exclusion to the BYU students in his 19th of September 2019 talk, Love and the Laws of God, that... It's precisely because we do care deeply about all of God's children that we proclaim His truth. We may not always tell people what they want to hear. Prophets are rarely popular. <laughs> but we will always teach the truth. My dear young friends, exaltation is not easy. Requirements include a focused and persistent effort to keep God's laws and rigorously repenting when we don't. But the reward for doing so is far greater than anything we can imagine because it brings us joy here and never-ending happiness hereafter. Thus, our commission as apostles is to teach nothing but truth. That commission does not give us the authority to modify divine law. For example, let's consider the definition of marriage. Yes, President Nelson, let's consider the definition of marriage. Joseph Smith authorized and made holy so many definitions of marriage, same-sex sex marriage is probably about the only one he didn't get round to as he rampaged from monogamy to polygamy to polyandry where you marry women already legally married to other priesthood-holding men who then become your brother-husbands 
and on to marrying a mother and her daughter, your teenage housemaids, and your foster daughters. The divine laws of marriage were modified every which way by Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, John Taylor, and then Wilford Woodruff. But you'll stand up in front of an audience of LDS university students and professors who know this and pretend they didn't, and declare your doctrinal infallibility because, quote, prophets are rarely popular, but we will always teach the truth. Russell's wife Wendy is now repeatedly telling us to distrust every other source of information than him. She said this in their broadcast to Europe this year, her interview with Church News Podcast, and every other opportunity she gets now, while her husband sits there smiling approvingly and then gets up to tell some more lies. If the only way the church's superstar scholar apologists and in-house official historians can live with themselves and defend Mormonism is to just ignore LDS Mormonism's actual leaders and pretend they don't teach what they do, this church is clearly in big trouble, and they are tearing their own souls and integrity to shreds, even trying to get away with that. As I've pointed out before, Patrick Mason's otherwise very positive recent book, Restoration, God's Call to the 21st Century, totally ignored the one major issue derailing the church and its failure in the 21st century, its leaders' crusades against LGBTQ people and their civil rights in wider society and among its membership. He mentioned all the other controversial topics like polygamy and racism, safe in the knowledge that the First Presidency is pretending to be anti-racist now, so he was safe to mention that, but not a whisper anywhere of LGBTQ people. So the whole premise of the book was fundamentally compromised by that glaring omission, and he was as vague about what the future of the church might actually look like as Joseph Smith was about prophecies that hadn't already been fulfilled when writing the Book of Mormon. So, welcome back, intrepid listeners, to one of the growing number of bloganacle podcasts that won't ever knowingly lie to you and won't ignore the real problems killing off this church in the real world, while still offering a realistic and specific game plan for the church to make it to the end of the 21st century. Ironically, the post-Mormon and dissident Mormon critics of the church are offering a far more realistic analysis and game plan for the church's credibility and survival, should anyone in power be bothered to hear us, than the church's own official and amateur apologists. Our analysis and proposals for saving the church are far more realistic than those of the apologists, because we are willing to acknowledge that the challenges the church faces are not just the consequences of minor human foibles by our leaders that are to be expected, and we can all pull together and muddle along making gradual progress and continue to do okay and survive, as people like Patrick Mason suggests. 
we recognise and discuss with total honesty that the entire system of how fundamental restoration principles like common consent and trusting people to govern themselves after learning true principles are being intentionally and spectacularly broken, ignored, repressed and replaced with doctrinal, cultural and financial lies and corruption on a scale that beggars belief. And the whole church is in a final death spiral it has no chance of snapping out of without being totally open and realistic about this. Wonderful, thoughtful and dedicated people like Patrick and the Sunderland State President and you and your local and regional priesthood and women presidencies are going to have to rebel against the corrupt apostolic oligarchy if they are really going to be doing anything close to enough to help prevent this catastrophe in reality but it seems highly unlikely, if not impossible, for that to happen in time. In his heart of hearts, Patrick knows this. In what follows, listen carefully for where he talks about how we all have a role to play in reforming the church, and particularly how important making change happen locally in our own congregations is going to matter. He gives it all the guff about the leaders of the church encouraging reforms when he knows perfectly well they have mostly dug their heels in and only made them when it became impossible to delay any longer, especially regarding more honest history. But as you listen now to some edited highlights of his Sunderland fireside, I invite you to bask in the wisdom and vision of this adorable man. I think better than anyone else alive today in the ranks of the LDS apologists, he understands and articulates how we really could have a hopeful, intellectually credible and realistic modern Mormonism capable of welcoming everyone, prioritising instead of persecuting the vulnerable as Jesus taught, welcoming diversity as essential as Paul taught and capable of retaining our young people, both in how we handle history and doctrine, and foster a completely safe environment at church to discuss and enact all those ideals. And then join me in a collective primal scream as even he hits the self-imposed glass ceiling of the fallible, infallible contradiction in Mormonism's civil war and simply and ludicrously flat-out lies to claim that the church's leaders and scriptures don't claim that the prophets and revelators are doctrinally infallible and will never lead the church astray, when they absolutely do make that claim, and have repeatedly led the church very astray indeed into violence, institutional and doctrinal racist segregation, campaigning homophobia, grand larceny, and now leading the church off a cliff to its fiery death. People like Patrick Mason and even Brad Wilcox at his best are so near to understanding what needs to change, and they make the case and plead for it with compassion and fervour. 
but they are still much too far from actually saving the church from the ravening wolves in sheep's clothing on the velvet thrones, savaging and preaching against all they hold dear. I am feeling particularly raw and frustrated with this this week, as I have found out that yet another devoted Latter-day Saint leader and friend I have served with and around for decades now, who gave everything to this religion with all his heart and constantly went the extra mile in his compassion and service, is now facing a future where his wife and all his children have now lost their trust and faith in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And he is just one of many. All that effort, all those covenants and promises and faith and trust and hard work have come to nothing in his own family and extended family, because people like Patrick Mason and Brad Wilcox and a thousand seventies and area authorities and stake presidencies and bishoprics and female auxiliary leaders know what the real problems are, but cannot allow themselves to have the courage to hold the causes of those problems responsible and oppose and replace them. And this failure to have that courage, to do the right thing and let the consequences follow, has cost them everything they hoped and prayed for. Because in their carefully conditioned minds, it was simply never an option. These parasites were allowed to run rampant, unopposed, these local and regional leaders thought they were immune from the consequences of not taking responsibility and fighting them like Jesus did his Pharisee leaders screwing up the real religion. They thought being Christ-like only involves being patient and kind and religiously fervent. They totally forgot, or were never taught, that being Christ-like also means being a principled rebel against abuse of power and corrupt authority. Being a shouty disruptor, a street fighter like Jesus. Walking into a temple and flipping tables if you have to. In the ages-old Mormon civil war, you have to never stop being vigilant and every generation needs to fight and win or the church disappears from the face of the earth as we have been taught repeatedly in the church's own curriculum about the Old Testament and Book of Mormon. You have to be brave, and you have to take responsibility. It isn't enough to say the right things, but never threaten the status quo and the leaders abusing the power. You have to stand before Pharaoh like Moses and tell him to set your people free from his slavery. You have to stand before King Noah like Abinadi and call out his sins and call him to repentance. You have to shout in the streets and the marketplace and the temple at the corrupt leaders like Jesus did and call them the vipers and hypocrites they are. Not tiptoe around reassuring everyone that all is basically well in Zion and will work out somehow if we can just be nice to each other and do the right things, even if the leaders aren't. The devastating consequences of the cowardice of so many Latter-day Saints choosing not to stand up to the leaders abusing their power 
and teaching their own ideas as doctrines of God inevitably, eventually backfires on them and their families. And when they realise they did too little and it's now too late for their own families, there is nothing left they can do but mourn and maybe step up to get involved in this struggle more proactively to protect the hopes and dreams of other people's families, since their own are never coming back. So let's spend some time listening to Patrick Mason as he shares his heart and mind with Sunderland Stake. His ridiculous, flagrant lie that no LDS leaders have ever claimed infallibility, and none of our scriptures make that claim for them, is an inexcusable deception, and the most useless defence I've ever heard an apologist offer to shore up people's testimonies. But almost everything else he said was spot on, powerfully expressing and mostly understanding why the multitudes who have left the church became so disappointed and disillusioned. This guy really, really gets it. He has listened and he has understood us. Most of the things Brad Wilcox and the general authorities who think and speak like Brad get totally wrong, Patrick gets right. So there is hope. He is a role model for how to be a respected LDS insider and not be an intentionally ignorant buffoon, missing the whole point and making everything worse every time you open your mouth or engaging in farcical mental gymnastics as often as you breathe. Podcasters in this space often get asked what we recommend for people to share with their TBM families as a starting point for understanding LDS faith and trust crisis, and that can be a really tricky one to answer, because we all know how hypersensitive typical church members have been taught to be to anything that sounds even slightly angry or critical of the church and its leaders. Tone policing is one of the favourite thought control and thought stopping tactics of the LDS church. It's the main reason my stake president gave for excommunicating me. But I think we have here a really good and safe place for our loved ones to begin to understand us. So my number one recommendation now is this fireside by Patrick, who is as Mormon kosher as it gets yet also mostly says exactly the same things we are all trying to persuade them to realise. If you, like so many of us, are trying to persuade TBM family members and friends to understand what your journey to nuanced or post-Mormonism has involved, and they are unwilling to trust or believe you, or the thousands of ex-Mormons very happy to explain it all with detail and passion, let Patrick Mason say it all to them for us. He's really good at it, apart from the clunky flagrant lie, but this is LDS Mormonism. This is as good as it ever gets. Brothers and sisters, just before commencing tonight's fireside and following our recent fireside's popularity, I feel it's important just to mention that these broadcasts are not official church meetings. These are organised by local leaders and the content doesn't necessarily constitute official church positions. We are just not authorised to do so. This fireside and others are for Sunderland Stake, although we are happy for anyone to join us 
as well as like, comment, and share on social media. Wherever you are, wherever you are, our desire is for all to come unto Christ. And hopefully, this fireside will help you do just that. Tonight, we are delighted to host Brother Patrick Mason this evening, who's joining us from Utah. Patrick Mason is a historian who specializes in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He is the current chair of Mormon History and Culture at Utah State University and was formerly the, the Howard W. Hunter Chair in Mormon Studies at Claremont Graduate University, California. He's previously held positions at the American University in Cairo and the University of Notre Dame. He is the author of multiple articles, chapters, and books, including the excellent Planted, of which we'll delve into this evening. So, so tonight we're going to talk about a topic that I think is really important. It's significant uh, for, for the church, wherever you are. Uh, but it also can be a, a topic that's a little bit difficult to, to talk about as well. And, and so what we're going to talk about tonight, uh, the title of my fireside is Faith, Doubt, and Discipleship. And uh, this, this question of doubt can be a, a, a difficult one, uh, but it's, I think it's important for us to, to wrestle with difficult topics, including this one. Uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, virtually everybody I meet within the church, uh, and when I, I do these kinds of firesides in person, I, I usually ask for a show of hands in terms of, of who personally knows somebody whether it be a family member, a friend, a, a, a ward member. But uh, do you personally know somebody, and maybe it's yourself, who, uh, because of questions and doubts about the church's teachings, its doctrines, its history, its practices, its policies, uh, it has either separated themselves from the church, has distanced themselves in some ways, or at least is, is thinking about doing so. And... And when I ask this in person, virtually every hand goes up, that virtually everybody knows somebody. So either we all know the same small group of people uh, who are distancing themselves from the church, or this really is uh, one, one of the issues that, that we have to deal with in the contemporary church. And so I think it's important for us to deal with it just straight on and, uh, and, and to talk about it honestly, but most importantly, find ways for us to address this faithfully. So today, in my uh, presentation, I want to think about three different questions, and this will kind of frame what I talk about today. So first of all, are there different ways that people who struggle with doubt can more positively approach their faith and church membership? So is there a way that, that we can think about the, the struggle with doubt in constructive ways? What about those of us who don't struggle with doubt? Those of us who, who believe, who, who don't have a kind of existential faith crisis. How do those who don't struggle in the same way, how do we understand and empathize with and create space for those who do? And perhaps most importantly, how can those who struggle and perhaps even leave the church and those who stay behind and remain faithful within the church, how can we maintain healthy and loving relationships? Because as I've gone around and given firesides similar to this, I've as I've spoken with people on the phone or by email, one of the things that just tears my heart out 
is the way that these things affect people's relationships, their marriages, their relationships with children or with parents, uh, with friends, uh, with, with ward members. It's the relationships that oftentimes really struggle and suffer um, because of this. And, and it's only natural because so much, those of us uh, who have been committed to the church and, and have consecrated our lives to it, we've so much of our identity and our relationships are wrapped up in the church. And so if somebody's relationship to the church changes, that can change their relationship with other people as well, people that they love. And so that can lead to all kinds of feelings. It can lead to pain. It can lead to mistrust. It can lead to anger, to feelings of betrayal on all sides, not just among those who, who, who doubt and may leave the church, but among those who, who stay as well. And so I'm convinced that this, how we deal with, with questions and concerns and doubts, I'm convinced that this is one of the greatest tests of our discipleship right now, both individually and collectively as a church. And for me, the big takeaway, if you remember one thing from, from this fireside, the big takeaway is that Christ's is a ministry of reconciliation. What Jesus does is to bridge divides. Uh, you know, I, th I think we can see some patterns and I'm going to lump some of these things together. And so what I'm going to talk about are three different categories today. I'm going to talk about people who feel switched off, people who feel squeezed out, and people who feel tuned out. What do I mean by people who feel switched off? Well, these are people for whom they at one point they were switched on. They were completely dedicated and devoted members of the church, whether they were born in the church or whether they were converts at some point, it doesn't matter, but they were completely dedicated and devoted. Maybe they've served missions, they've served in callings, they, they've um, uh, raised their children in the church, they've, they've done all the kinds of things that we associate with faithful church activity. But at some point, Something happened that began to raise questions and doubts in their mind. Oftentimes, I've heard a lot of stories of this. It started by preparing a church lesson, maybe going online and finding some information that was troubling to them. Things that, despite their years of church service, that they hadn't heard before. Something about the church's past or things that church leaders had taught at some point. And they at first maybe dismiss this as sort of anti-Mormonism or something like that. And then, but as they dig into it a little bit more and as they delve a little bit deeper, they realize, wait a minute, there's something to this. And that leads them to, to find, find more and more information. And oftentimes there's a dynamic in which they say, wait a minute, why didn't anybody tell me this? I served a mission. I've served all these years in the church. I went to seminary or institute or I've sat in gospel doctrine classes. Why did nobody ever tell me this? And so there's a sense of betrayal. There's a sense of being lied to. And there's a, a sense of, of thinking, well, what else are they not telling me? And that, uh, you know, if uh, another word for faith is trust. And once somebody begins to lose trust in the church and its leaders and its teachings, it's very hard to rebuild that. Um, and, and so they be, it, it begins a, a, a negative cycle. Uh, where they begin to lose their faith and their trust. Uh, now, some people sort of suffer silently and, and they decide, you know, there's a lot of good things about the church and they rely on their spiritual experiences and they sort of stick with it. Um, 
uh, for lots of reasons. And I admire those people who, who hang on uh, with all that they've got. But other people say that the, the, the cost is too high, the price is too high, they lose their faith, their trust, and they decide to separate themselves from the church. So these are the people who I'd say are switched off. At one point they were switched on, but then they, they feel switched off. So what do we do? So if there is someone who is mourning, if there is someone who is in grief because of their doubt, because of their questions, because of their concerns, our first commitment as Christians is to mourn with them and to comfort them. There will be a time for testimony. There will be a time to stand as a witness of Christ. That is important. That is an equal part of the covenant. But the first thing, it seems to me, that we do is that we show them we love them. We go to them. We run to them. We sit with them. We let them know that they are loved. That's what God does with us. Okay? That doesn't mean that we have to capitulate on the things that we know and we believe. It doesn't mean we have to give up our beliefs. It doesn't mean that even that we have to go down the same rabbit hole that they have, maybe in terms of internet research and so forth. But it does mean that we are called to love. Choose to believe in Jesus Christ. If you have doubts about God the Father and His beloved Son, or the validity of the restoration, or the veracity of Joseph Smith's divine calling as a prophet, choose to believe and stay faithful. Take your questions to the Lord and to other faithful sources. Study with the desire to believe rather than with the hope that you can find a flaw in the fabric of a prophet's life or a discrepancy in the scriptures. Stop increasing your doubts by rehearsing them with other doubters. Now, what about those who, who feel switched off, those who have gone through this process and, and are racked with, with doubt? Well, I'd say a few things. First of all, uh, that doubt, uh, it's important for us to recognize that it is authentic. It's genuine. Sometimes we have a tendency to think that, that people's doubts are really a cover for sin, other forms of sin or other kinds of bad behaviors. Sometimes that's true. Um, but in a lot of times, I, most cases that I know of, these are sincere questions. These are sincere wrestlings that people are going through. It's important for us to recognize that. In later years, I saw a few leave the church who could then never leave it alone. They used often their intellectual reservations to cover their behavioral lapses. You will see some of that. Moral relativists advocate that truth is merely a social construct, that there are no moral absolutes. What they're really saying is that there is no sin, that whatsoever a man does is no crime, a philosophy for which the adversary is claiming proud authorship. Let us therefore beware of wolves in sheep's clothing who are always recruiting and often use their intellectual reservations to cover their own behavioral lapses. At the same time, I think it's important for people as they go through this to recognize and acknowledge that the facts of the matter do not necessarily compel disbelief. 
So their doubt and their disbelief may be absolutely genuine and authentic, but other people can look at the same set of facts and not be led towards doubt and disbelief. Um, I've looked at all of these issues uh, uh, and many other scholars, many other members of the church have looked at all of these issues and have, and, and have come through with their faith uh, stronger, changed perhaps, but stronger ultimately. So the, none of the facts, none of the historical issues, none of the doctrinal issues, none of the past statements of church leaders compel disbelief. And so I think for those who do leave, who do authentically have a struggle with doubt and disbelief, they also need to leave room in their hearts and minds to recognize that those who stay behind, those who remain in the church, they're not necessarily dupes or, you know, they, they haven't been fooled or they're not ignorant or things like that, but that they have found a different way to work through these things. So there has to be generosity and charity on both sides of this. And we have to show love to one another, um, uh, regardless of how you are feeling in your own heart related to these things. I think it's important for people's research to expand uh, and, and for people to go deep. If, if these things matter to them, if matters of the spirit, if their relationship to the church really matters, then you know, just reading a few blogs or listening to a few podcasts isn't going to do. That, that there are resources out there and people can do deep research. And that includes the resources that the church has, has put out. So not to, to discard those things. Um, and in all cases, for everyone involved here, again, for those who leave and those who stay behind, the Christian virtues always apply. We have to remain humble. We have to remain loving. We have to perhaps most of all, retain hope that um, many people who struggle with doubt and disbelief, it is it can be a very dark time for them. And, and this is the thing that's so important is, is that for many, many folks, they didn't choose it. They didn't want it. They were perfectly happy in the church, but this sort of blindsided them oftentimes. Um, and so it can feel very dark. It is important maybe the maybe the one one of the most important things we do you know we talk about the three great christian virtues faith hope and charity hope sometimes gets left out as kind of the middle child we talk a lot about faith we talk a lot about love well what about hope we need to hold on to hope we need to give people hope that there is a way forward that there can be light in the darkness that there can be a light at the end of the tunnel that even in the if this journey is difficult and if it is dark that there is hope at the end hope for reconciliation, hope for clarity, uh, hope for, for better things. Um, that is fundamental to what it means to follow Christ, is to offer hope to people. All right, so one of the things we have to recognize as well is that many of these issues that lead to people being switched off, uh, again, whether it be race and the priesthood, whether it be Book of Mormon translation, whether it be polygamy, whether it, it, it be, you know, in any number of things, uh, the uh, Many of these things are rooted in our doctrine of living prophets. One of the core proclamations of the restored gospel is that God has called prophets and apostles in these latter days and that he continues to reveal his word through them. That is one of the things that we absolutely proclaim to the world. But I think sometimes we, we haven't thought through the implications of that theology all that much. And I think sometimes we can fall into a trap of assuming that our leaders are infallible, that they never make mistakes, that they are always speaking for God, 
uh, in all times. There's a great saying that I like, and I don't know who came up with it, uh, but I like it. It says that Roman Catholics teach that the popes are infallible, but nobody believes it. Latter-day Saints teach that the prophets are fallible, but nobody believes it, <laughs> right? And so we uh, actually, no prophet of our church has ever taught the doctrine of prophetic infallibility. No scripture that we have has ever taught the, the doctrine of prophetic infallibility, quite the opposite. But culturally, for various reasons, I think we've adopted this notion that, that, uh, that, that, that at least functionally, we sometimes feel like that our leaders are infallible, even though they don't claim that for themselves and the scriptures don't claim that for them. One of my favorite scriptures along these regards is uh, comes from section 21 of the Doctrine and Covenants. This was actually the very first revelation given to the restored church. It came on April 6, 1830, the day that the church was organized. And so this was the very first revelation given to the organized church. And in it, it called Joseph Smith to be the prophet, seer, and revelator of the church. And then it said in verse 5, for his word ye shall receive as if from mine own mouth in all patience and faith. And I love that phrase, in all patience and faith. We've done a marvelous job as Latter-day Saints in embracing the prophet's words with faith, right? This is who we are. This is what we do, right? We, we, we know that God is called prophets, and so we follow them in faith. But God also said on that very first day that the church was organized, he says, it's going to take patience, to follow the prophets. And why would it take patience? Because they are not infallible, because they are not perfect in every regard. God knew that, and he knew that it would take patience for us to raise our hand and sustain mortal men as prophets, seers, and revelators. There, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the primary song, uh, Follow the Prophet. It's very catchy. Uh, uh, you know, follow the prophet, follow the prophet, right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a very catchy song. Now that I've sung it, it's going to be stuck in your head for the rest of the day. So anyway, so it, it's a great song. It teaches all about the prophets from, from the various dispensations, starting with Adam. But anyway, so I have uh, four kids, and I, I married a woman who was not raised in the church. She was an adult convert, and so she's the only member of the church in, in her family. And for the most part, um, it's been an area of some tension with her parents. Um, we, we, things are, are fine now, but it's, it's always a little bit awkward, um, the, the, the church is. And so we mostly just don't talk about it. That's how, <laughs> that's how we deal with it. Um, so anyway, a few years ago, we were visiting uh, her parents at, at, in their home. And, you know, we were just sitting in the living room talking and, and chatting. And all of a sudden, our kids, prompted by nothing, uh, they started marching around the living room singing, follow the prophet, follow. <laughs> you know, they must have learned it in primary that week or something like that. But, you know, my wife and I, we were just going crazy because we've done all this work over the years to convince her parents that we're not members of a crazy cult. Right. And now all of a sudden our kids are marching around singing this song that sort of sounds like a Soviet gulag or something like that, like follow the prophet. You know, so we're just wilting. Right now. In fact, I love that song. I think it's a great song. I think it's great that our kids sing it. But if I had my druthers, if I had my choice, I would change just one thing about that song. And it wouldn't even be any of the words. Keep all the words just as they are. That's fine. But. I would change just one thing, and it would be the capitalization of one of those words. Remember in the, in the chorus, it says, follow the prophet, follow the prophet. He knows the way. 
if I had my choice, I wish we could capitalize that word way. We don't follow the prophets because they are great gurus who have gone to the mountain and have this kind of special enlightenment that they then share with the rest of us. No, we follow the prophets because they know the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. We follow the prophets because they point us to our Savior and Redeemer. So it's not so much that we look to the prophets. We look with the prophets to the author and finisher of our faith. And so, yes, we follow the prophets because God has called them in latter days to lead us and to guide us, but to do so because they follow the master, because they point us to the way. And it's important for us to always remember this. This is not the church of Joseph Smith. It's not the church of Russell Nelson. It is the church of Jesus Christ. And the prophets and apostles are his servants, just like we are. Or it can be more significant issues, uh, serious issues, like women's roles within the church, um, like the, the place of LGBTQ members of the church. And... These can be difficult conversations and, and um, difficult issues. And also I've talked about people of color uh, with, within the church. And so what, what do we do? And, and so many people um, feel squeezed out because, again, they, they, they feel like their experience doesn't conform to what they think is, is the normal experience within a Latter-day Saint congregation. So what do we do? I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers about women's issues. I don't have all the answers about LGBTQ issues. I think we're seeing a lot of revelation and a lot of movement in the church right now and over the past few years on these issues. And I expect more uh, in the coming years. We believe in ongoing revelation. We believe that our leaders receive revelation, both at the local and general level, and that members of the church uh, can do much you know, to, to be anxiously engaged um, as, as, as part of this. But what can we do? I think, especially at the local level, we have to create wards that are embracing of all of God's children, that there is a place for anybody who wants to worship with us to worship with us. We are a church for all of God's children, not just some of God's children. Our message to the world, our message to every person who walks in the door are, has to be, we're glad you're here. Thanks for being here. Thanks for wanting to worship the Savior with us. Uh, let's, let's do so together. Come on, sister. Come on, brother. Let's do this together. I am convinced that God rejoices in the diversity that he has created. And the body of Christ, remember that great metaphor from the Apostle Paul in the epistle to the Corinthians, where he talks about the body of Christ and compares it to a human body with all of our different parts and their different functions. And the Apostle Paul says that we need every single part, that some parts, the eye can't say to the foot, I'm better than you. The eye can't say to the hand, I, don't, I have no need of you. We need every single part of the body. We don't need all eyes or all hands or all stomachs. We need every part of the body in all of the diversity that God created, that we're weaker. The body of Christ is weaker if we only bring together people who essentially have the same spiritual gifts. And so if I want to attend a church with people who only look and think and act like me, 
then I'm guilty of idolatry, of creating God in my own image, rather than embracing the diversity that he has created in his image, that all of God's creation reflects him, reflects his loving care, reflects his creation. And so it's important for us to create wards that are inclusive of everyone who wants to come and worship with us. With us. In fact, Paul says in that great chapter, in that metaphor of the body of Christ, that those members of the body that feel weaker or that receive less honor, right, um, they are the ones that we should pay more attention to. Right? And of course, there's the, the Savior's parable of going after the one sheep and so forth. So this is throughout Scripture that God has a heart in particular for those who struggle and suffer and feel like they are on the outside. Uh, and so we should as well. Another thing that I've done recently, um, because we can all feel this way sometimes, you know, some somebody will say something at church that, that we don't like, that rubs us wrong or something like that. We can all feel, no matter who we are, we, we, can, we can wonder if the church is really a place for us. Um, one of the things that I've been doing recently in recent years that's actually been really helpful for me as a spiritual discipline is to actually pay when, when I'm in church. And again, I know things are, are weird right now. Um, but when I'm in church or when I'm at state conference or even in general conference, that I try to, try to pay special attention to the people that I'm inclined to disagree with. Right now, because we all know, right, whether we're in sacrament meeting or in general conference, there are speakers that we just resonate with. Right. When our friends get up to speak in sacrament meeting, we pay attention because they're our friends. We like what they what they have to say. They probably, you know, it, it resonates with us. Right. Or same in general conference. I mean, I know it's a dirty little secret. We're supposed to sustain all the brethren the same. But most of us have, you know, some speakers that resonate with us a little bit more than others. Some speakers, we're on the edge of our seats and we can't wait when elder so-and-so speaks. Uh, but when elder so-and-so speaks, maybe that's the time that we, I don't know, get up and go to the bathroom or get a snack or something like that, right? But I think there's a certain spiritual discipline in listening harder to the people that we're inclined to disagree with. That when brother so-and-so gets up in sacrament meeting or to bear his testimony, instead of like, that's, when we pull out our phones or something like that, right? Because uh, we don't know what brother so-and-so is going to say. That's actually when we pay more attention. And the reason why is that God might have something to tell you, right? When you only listen to your friends, when you only listen to the things that you already agree with, what are you going to learn, right? You'll be reinforced, and, and that's not a bad thing. We do that in the church a lot. But what are you going to learn? The same thing in general conference, right? If you only listen or pay attention to the messages that you already agree with, that already resonate with who you are and what you do, what are you going to learn? But the gospel is a gospel of repentance. It's a gospel of change. It's a, it's a gospel of progress, of moving forward, of looking for the gaps and the spaces in our lives that we need to fill or that maybe we need to correct. And so are we open to being surprised? Are we open to not being offended by what somebody else has to say, but saying, is there something in that for me that I need to learn? Um, maybe there's, there's something for, that they need to learn too, right? But 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 am I open to, to, to learning new things and hearing it from voices that I might not be accustomed to paying attention to? So that's worth thinking about. Here, I, wa I want to read a quote from a Jewish rabbi. 
a guy named Abraham Joshua Heschel. He was a rabbi here in the United States in the middle part of the 20th century. And he wrote a classic book in 1955 called God in Search of Man. And we oftentimes think about the 1950s, or at least here in America, as a kind of golden era when everybody was a believer, everybody went to church, religion was really a, at a kind of high point uh, in this country. Um, but here's Rabbi Heschel in the middle of this in 1955, who writes this book, God in Search of Man, and he opens the book with this paragraph. He says, it's <coughs> excuse me, it is customary to blame secular science and anti-religious philosophy for the eclipse of religion in modern society. Moral relativists advocate that truth is merely a social construct, that there are no moral absolutes. What they're really saying is that there is no sin, that whatsoever a man does is no crime, a philosophy for which the adversary is claiming proud authorship. Many now claim that truth is relative and that there is no such thing as divine law or a divine plan. Such a claim is simply not true. There is a difference between right and wrong. Truth is based upon the laws God has established for the dependability, protection, and nurturing of his children. Eternal laws operate in and affect each of our lives, whether we believe them or not. It would be more honest to blame religion for its own defeats. Religion declined not because it was refuted, but because it became irrelevant, dull, oppressive, and insipid. Or in other words, he's saying it's not because of Marx and Freud and other philosophers and secularists and so forth that the religion declines or gets attacked. I mean, they, they attack it, but that's not the reason for religion's decline. He says religion declines because it became irrelevant, dull, oppressive, and insipid. Rabbi Heschel says, when faith is completely replaced by creed, worship by discipline, love by habit, when the crisis of today is ignored because of the splendor of the past, when faith becomes an heirloom rather than a living fountain, when religion speaks only in the name of authority rather than with the voice of compassion, its message becomes meaningless. Now, Rabbi Heschel wrote that way back in 1955, but I think it has a lot to, to say to us today. There are many people among our ranks who feel simply tuned out, that they feel bored by our meetings. They feel bored by gathering with the saints. They feel, for whatever reason, that their religion has become irrelevant or dull, boring, oppressive, insipid, right? There's a kind of spiritual malaise among too many of our members that eventually leads some of them, at least, to distance themselves from the church. But I am convinced, and I'm more convinced now than I ever have been, and with each passing day and year, that our church, that the restored gospel of Jesus Christ is rich and sophisticated and transformative that it is the message of salvation to the world, that it can transform your life, it can transform our communities, it can transform the world, that it is anything but irrelevant, dull, oppressive, and insipid. But sometimes we make it that way. Sometimes, 
As Elder Ruchdorf has said in general conference, we live beneath our privileges. We've been given this great gift of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we make it so dang boring, <laughs> right? That who would want to be part of it, right? Our task is to make the gospel relevant to today. Not just to 1820 when Joseph Smith went and prayed in the woods. He got his answer. 200 years later, we need our answers. We need to make the restoration relevant to today, to whatever the questions are of the people who walk in our chapels or who meet with our missionaries or who open the scriptures or who attend our youth programs or who attend firesides like this. We need to ask the question, what does the gospel have to say to us today? How do we make the restored gospel meaningful to people in the 21st century? That is the great challenge before us. That's what we all have to do, not just our leaders, not just the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency, but not just our bishops and our stake presidents and our Relief Society presidents. Every single one of us has to ask ourselves that question. What does the restored gospel of Jesus Christ mean to me? How can I make it relevant and transformative in my life today? Every generation has to rediscover the gospel for themselves. It's not enough to live off of some but the previous generation's understanding of the gospel. They, had, they lived in a different time. They had a different set of questions. They had a different set of problems. You have to figure out what the gospel means to you now. That is what will make the gospel relevant and exciting and empowering and transformative. This is what is meant, I think, in some ways by the ongoing restoration. We've heard a lot about the ongoing restoration in General Conference recently. Okay, This is what it means. The restoration wasn't done with Joseph Smith. It wasn't done when he walked out of the Sacred Grove. It wasn't done when he died in 1844. It wasn't done when the pioneers crossed the plains. It wasn't done when you got baptized. It won't be done at the end of today. The restoration is ongoing. God has more to tell us. God has more to teach us. We have to be open in our minds and our hearts. We have to ask the questions, and we have to let God tell us what the restored gospel means for the world today. That is what will keep us tuned in. That's what will keep our children tuned in. That's what will make people respond to the message of the missionaries. When we are not just going with a prepackaged set of answers to people, but when we are going and listening to their questions and then figuring out how the restored gospel answers those questions, because it does, that's when we will capture people's hearts and minds. And not we, it's not a numbers game. It's not about just getting more people in the club. That's when we will be the vehicles of letting God capture their hearts and minds, letting Christ capture their hearts so that they can be disciples, so that they can become a light and share the light of Christ in the world to the people in their circles, the people who need it. That's what we're called to do. Let me finish with this. When Jesus began his ministry, after he'd been tempted in the wilderness, after he'd been prepared for 30 years, when he began his ministry, he went to a synagogue and he stood in the front and he recited a passage from Isaiah. And we find this in Luke chapter four. And he said, and this was him announcing his ministry to the people. And this defines his ministry. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. 
He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. If that was Jesus's mission, that is our mission. It is to preach the gospel to the poor, those who are poor in spirit, but those who are poor in resources as well. Ours is a ministry to the poor. It is to heal the brokenhearted. There are so many people suffering, suffering from broken marriages, suffering from abuse, suffering from financial hardship, suffering from sickness. There are so many people who are brokenhearted. We are called to a ministry of healing, to preach deliverance to the captives. There are so many people who are captive, captive to addiction, captive to bad habits, captive to to feeling like that they're in darkness, that there's no way out, that there's no way forward. There's so many ways in which we are in captivity. We are called to preach deliverance to them of recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. So many forms of blindness, and then so much pain, so much sorrow, so much grief. Whether it be refugees fleeing from their home countries because of violence and because of persecution, whether it be people trapped in addiction, trapped in abusive relationships, whether it be people who are just bruised by the daily life, right? Life is hard. People who are bruised by the effects of a global pandemic, people who are bruised by destructive family relationships or or bad work relationships or bullying at school or whatever bruises you carry, whatever bruises other people carry, Christ calls us to set those people at liberty, to set ourselves at liberty. The gospel of Jesus Christ does that. So that's how we get people to tune in. We get them to catch a vision of Jesus's ministry. It is nothing less than to heal the world and to heal every man, woman, and child in it. Whatever their pains, their sicknesses, their sorrows, their griefs, this is what the atonement does. Alma chapter 7 talks about this. And so we are called to be saviors on Mount Zion, to do the work of Jesus, to help other people heal. That's what we're called to do. This is what the church is called to do. The church offers ministries to heal people. This is why we send missionaries into the world. This is why we do temple work. This is why we teach classes. This is why we have youth programs. This is why we do everything we do in the church, is to bring people to Christ so they can be healed, so that he can do with them what he did with the people when he walked the earth in the New Testament. So brothers and sisters, I have a testimony. I have a testimony that as we capture the vision of what the restoration is, as we capture a vision of the ongoing restoration, the work of Jesus in the world today, that will do more than anything to answer our questions, to put our doubts in perspective. Not that those doubts aren't real, but to realize that there is a bigger ministry, a bigger project that Jesus calls us to. We can do better. We can do better. We will do better. We'll move forward in faith. And through the ongoing restoration, through the revelation that God continues to give to our leaders and to each one of us, we'll make the restoration better. 
and the church will move on and it will heal the world and we will be with it. And so I have a testimony of that. I have a testimony of the redeeming and reconciling work of Jesus, that he can work miracles in our lives, that he is our savior and that we can do his work alongside him. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. That, that squeezing out, it reminds me of, of Darius Gray in the 1960s, who was walking past Temple Square, and he, um, Darius Gray is a man of colour, and, um, and, and he, he saw, everybody's looking at me, why is everybody looking at me? In his own words said, um, I was the darkest thing that these people had ever seen, and he felt alienated from, from that. And then he saw in the distance a, a car, and, um, and he saw two, two black people in the car, and he thought, wow, I'm not, I'm not the only person here in Utah <laughs> It was black. So he went over and he says, hey, how are you guys doing? He says, we don't know. We're just lost. So they, they were just passing through. What, what, would, what would you say to people who may not be, may, may feel squeezed out perhaps by more subtle things? So not necessarily because of sexuality or race or, or, or anything like or middle class and they're not middle class or whatever it might be. But maybe they're, they're single. Maybe yeah. they, they, they see people getting up every fast and testimony meeting saying, I know. Yet that, 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 that culture of certainty, that's not something that they can relate to. What, what, what kind of advice maybe to leaders or to those individuals could you offer, do you think? We have to look out for those who may not fit the mold, right? Uh, of of, of the, the, the family who looks a certain way, dresses a certain way and so forth. And so now it's hard. Some of these things are hidden in people's hearts, right? And and it's hard because we don't always know these things. But some of these things, we know when somebody is single. We know when somebody is divorced. We, we know, you know, um, and so those, w- without being patronizing, without being paternalistic, but we're we are called to, to reach out to them quietly and privately and say, what can we do to make sure that you feel totally included here, right? What what can we do? And and so I it, the burden can't fall on the people, you know, like Darius or, or, or the people who feel like they're on the outside. I think too often we do this. We put the burden on them to make a place for themselves, right? Yeah. Instead, we have to expand our circle and make a place for them. Some of that's going to happen in church meetings, but also, uh, and I know all of this is complicated by COVID, but once we get past this, it also happens over the dinner table, right? Are we inviting people into our homes? Are we are we socializing with people who aren't just part of our normal social group, right? Um, are we really uh, uh, embracing uh, people? But I, I think for uh, for for uh, people themselves, that there is a certain level of patience. There's a certain level of, of bravery, right? Being able to step into a place where you might not fully. Uh, feel comfortable. And what I love about this, the story of Darius Gray that you shared, and, and I've, I've gotten to know Darius over the years, he stuck with it because he felt that God had called him to this place, right? Mm. And despite all of the hardship that he's experienced over the past half century, he can't forget the fact that God called him to be part of this people and part of this church. And there's something really powerful uh, about that, of people being secure in God's revelations to them, right? And mm-hmm. in their own experiences with the divine that they experienced at church and they experience other things too. It can be hard, but they say, just like Thomas did, that's why I opened with that story. This is where I found God. This is where I found Christ. And I'll work through all the other stuff. I think what we have to appreciate is that for a lot of people coming to church on Sunday, showing up on Sunday is maybe the bravest and hardest thing they do all week. 
I think last thing I'll say about this is I have a friend who's a stake president in Southern California. He's done this great thing. He, he said that I don't want any youth to graduate high school from my stake and go on to college without having us having addressed these things in a faithful context. So he started a series of firesides where he gets all of the the high school seniors, and I don't know what the equivalent to that would be in, in England, but he gets all of the, the high school seniors together once a month, and he, as stake president, leads them through the issues that are in the Gospel Topics essays, right? Mm -hmm. So they're getting it from church leaders or from their parents, from trusted sources, um, rather than just getting everything online. Yeah, and I guess for, for that young woman in that example that you gave, it's clearly she felt comfortable to, yeah. to, to, to say that. So it's cultivating that environment where people do feel comfortable to share their concerns or questions on, on these types of issues. Yeah. And so and we should be doing home. that in seminary classes and young women's and young men's. Yeah. I mean, th that time, the, it's, it's the same principle as being a parent, right? It's you have to spend the time with them so that they feel comfortable then just raising questions. Right. It's the same in, in our ministry to the youth. That's why time matters. Right. Meetings matter. Activities matter. Not that every single one we're going to be talking about Joseph Smith and polygamy, but we have to spend enough time to develop a relationship where they, they do feel comfortable asking us those hard questions. Absolutely. Great. Okay. Again, verbatim here. It seems that some leaders say we shouldn't doubt and quote Doctrine and Covenants, doubt not, fear not, as a reference for this. Others say it is okay to doubt, and this leads to further learning. How do we reconcile these two seemingly polar teachings? Yeah, terrific question. Um, so <clears throat> I can't speak for leaders of the church, but but here's what here's how I understand um, those two because it is seemingly two different messages. What I would say is, it, and what I hear when I put them together, when I harmonize them, is this: that of course we welcome questions. This church, the restoration began with a 14-year-old's question with him wrestling with spiritual things and then being willing to ask God for further light and knowledge. We welcome that. We also absolutely acknowledge the fact, and it is a fact, that many people experience doubt and, and struggle with questions about church doctrine and practice and so forth. That is not something that, that, that we can hide. And I think we've gotten better and church leadership has gotten better at saying those things are real. Okay. Um, so, so yes, we welcome all of that. We're not afraid of any question. We're not afraid of any conversation because of our testimonies in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We do believe that this is his church and his gospel. But, and that, now this is the other side of the coin, the, the doubt not, the fear not, the, the kind of negative statements about doubt. Doubt is not a destination. We do not, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, encourage people to stay in a long-term relationship with doubt. Doubt may be an important part of your spiritual journey. Again, not necessarily one that you want to court or encourage, but it may just come to you, right? And different people have different spiritual journeys. Some people go through their whole lives without going through a, a period of significant doubt. For other people, that's not the case, and they do, okay? So, but doubt has to be a way station on your journey of faith, not the destination. And so we don't celebrate doubt. We don't encourage doubt. We don't tell people, you know, you really need to go through a period of doubt. We don't do any of those things because the destination is faith. The destination is hope. The destination is the love of God and the relationship with God. So hope may be a necessary 
part of that journey, but it's not the destination. So we want to, to, to help people through the Lord's help and through our ministry to, to, to get through that. So I think that's maybe how we can reconcile what seems like two different positions, but actually I, I think come, to, come together in, in, in a, a singular view. Sure, yeah, great, thank you. President Ballard has said this uh, in a recent address to all of the seminary and institute teachers. He said, there was a time in the church where when people asked tough questions, we said, uh, we just bore our testimony mm. <laughs> and then ignored the question. He said, that time has passed. We don't do that anymore. We acknowledge the question. If we have an answer, we answer the question in an appropriate and faith-promoting way. Um, uh, if we don't have the answer to the question, we say, I don't know, but that's a good question. Let's work on it together, right? So president, and, and so I think even though he was talking just to seminary institute teachers, I think the principle applies to all of us. We acknowledge the question. We show that we're not afraid of the question. We're glad that our children or our youth are using their brains as well as their hearts. We embrace that. The restoration is a religion of heart and heart and mind. And, um, but, but then we, we will go and, and look at the church's resources together. We'll look at the gospel topics essays and it may force us as adults and as leaders and as parents, we have to rethink some of this stuff too. We have to seek further light and knowledge. We may realize that we don't have all the answers and so we, we've got to figure this stuff out for ourselves, too. But I think the most important thing is we acknowledge it. We let people know that we we love that people are using their minds. We invite them to wrestle with the gospel with their whole mind, might, heart and strength. Um, that's what the, that's what God calls of us. And so we'll, we'll engage in, in all of these things precisely because we have testimonies that the gospel is true. We have testimonies that the, that the church is true. Despite any difficulties, despite any hiccups, despite, as President Uchtdorf said, despite the fact that we've made mistakes in our past, fundamentally, this is the work of Jesus Christ. And so he will redeem our history. He will redeem whatever mistakes we've made. And so as long as we use the church and the gospel to stay connected to him, to our Savior, and as long as we participate in the ongoing restoration to make the church better, um, then we're going to be okay. And and we can encourage that for, for our youth and, and for all of us. In the previous episode, 10B, we learned about how Brad's charming gifts for speaking with boundless enthusiasm about the LDS religion to young audiences with some wisdom and lots of reassuring certainty has propelled him from elementary school teacher to teaching education and now ancient scripture at the church's flagship Brigham Young University in Provo. He has no qualifications whatsoever to support his career as a university professor of ancient scripture, but in the church and BYU's current culture, that doesn't matter, as long as you are effective in convincing young Latter-day Saints to remain so, serve missions, and choose not to join the 80% of their peers globally who run away from the church by the time they are 30. In practice, his role seems to have been mostly teaching mission preparation rather than the university-level ancient civilization stuff he has no clue about. If you seem to have that magic gift, 
This church will turn you into a celebrity and pile a lot of opportunity and pressure on you to save the kids in ways the usually extremely geriatric and boring apostles find impossible. This role is potentially a poisoned chalice, both for those individuals and the church, because it is unreasonable for someone playing it to keep cheerleading for the brethren and convincing the kids that all is well in Zion and they can look forward to successful missions and exponential growth of their wards and active LDS extended families when all the available evidence screams otherwise and lots of local leaders are in the same bind of cognitive dissonance. So, I am spending several episodes focusing on Brad's journey, what he teaches young people, and the epic debacle that has perhaps inevitably ensued in recent months, as he became the next Fall Guy apologist, trying hard to do the impossible, along with the other hapless apologists, who have been thrust into the front-line interface with the real world that the apostles are now terrified and totally unequipped to handle competently. Everything that has gone wrong for Brad is exactly the same as has gone wrong for the whole institution. Like our Queen, whose platinum jubilee on the throne we have been celebrating this week, Brad is an avatar of an entire community and what it thinks and believes about itself. So this mini-series is not about a personal character assassination of Brad Wilcox. Removing him from his positions of influence and power will not fix the larger problems unless people like him are replaced with people very different to the average general authority. If there are specific baddies in this story who are ultimately responsible for this mess, it's not him. He is a victim of the whole situation as much as anyone, although I think it is fair to expect individuals to be accountable for intentionally lying when they should know better. It is about exploring the existential state of the LDS Church now as an institution and what it has been conditioning Brad and all of us to think and do. The First Presidency have been backpedalling hard in recent years on their predecessors' concessions to reality, reasonable compassion and honesty about the Church's very messy origins and history. They are abandoning what the Gospel Topics essays admit, while pointing to them vaguely when it suits them. Presidents Nelson, Oakes and Eyring are now expecting all active members to pretend these moments of honesty didn't happen and reboot to the 1980s and continue the magic of overclaiming McConkie Mormonism we all grew up in, while they needlessly cancel most of the things from that era that made that experience of our religion fun. This is completely futile as McConkie Mormonism already crashed disastrously into the internet age where a few moments of research online will lead young and old to discover how much that kind of Mormonism depended on staggering levels of deception and every cliché cult technique of brainwashing and leader worship there is. These truth bombs 
and the total incompatibility of traditional Mormonism's doctrinal and cultural racism, sexism and homophobia with the ethical centre of gravity of the modern age, lay waste to this world view, and expose leaders like Brad and the First Presidency and Quorum of Twelve Apostles as uninformed, dishonest and hopelessly out of their depth as they try to defend the indefensible. They know it's not working, so in desperation they now try to fix the internet problem by telling everyone to totally ignore it and never again trust anything anyone says about anything except the current LDS prophet. That's impossible when the internet is omnipresent and they no longer control the information and media church members encounter about the church like they used to. And it screams sinister cult control freaks every time they preach this approach and ramp up the everything and everyone outside the church is dangerous and evil mindset that we have already heard Brad Wilcox hammering home into the minds of the teenagers of Sunderland. Paul H. Dunn was infamously promoted beyond his real capabilities or trustworthiness as the magic youth speaker in the 1970s and 80s, until tenacious journalists, particularly Boyd K. Packer's nephew, Lynn Packer, revealed he was lying his head off in nearly all the stories he told about his own fantasy life in baseball and World War II. They also discovered that Paul H. Dunn was engaged in outrageous criminal enterprises, using his status as a Celebrity General Authority 70 to rob affinity fraud victims of fortunes, selling them dodgy insurance and investments. Yet another manifestation of the endemic affinity fraud epidemic in Mormon communities that has made Utah the affinity fraud capital of the USA as predators feast on a huge community of people intensively conditioned to make life-changing decisions based on feelings rather than rational analysis, and totally trusting confident authority figures who dress smartly and seem sincere. To save on air miles, the FBI now have a permanent affinity fraud investigation office in Utah, just a week or two ago, yet another Ponzi scheme was exposed, robbing Latter-day Saints there of hundreds of millions of dollars. If you Google Mormon Ponzi scheme, you will find news articles dating back decades about this same thing happening over and over again in high-density LDS communities, robbing the gullible of tens or hundreds of millions of dollars every time. I just googled FBI Utah Affinity Fraud Office and the first result is the FBI website with a very frank analysis of how the LDS culture fosters this nightmare in what is meant to be a holy and safe Zion. It says, quote, Financial fraudsters are known to be an unscrupulous lot, but it is particularly loathsome when these white-collar criminals exploit trusting members of their own church or social circle to line their pockets. Financial crimes based on bonds of trust, known as affinity fraud, occur throughout the United States, 
but are especially prevalent in Utah, where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints too often are victimised by savvy fraudsters who claim to be just like them. Quote, These are greedy individuals who will stop at nothing, said John Huber, the US Attorney for the District of Utah, a lifelong resident of the state and member of the Mormon Church. Quote, What's so disconcerting is that these criminals approach us at church or through associations at our work or referrals from friends. They are silver-tongued devils, wolves in sheep's clothing, who will take your money and you'll never see it again. Close quote. In Utah we have uh, unique dynamics, as any community would, whether that's uh, religious communities in, in, on the eastern seaboard in Boston or elsewhere or ethnic communities. Uh, we form relationships of trust and when someone starts speaking like we speak or they act like we act, there's almost an instant trust that is extended to them. And so in Utah we see this affinity fraud, people who exploit their relationships with others to, to take advantage of them. We see that in Utah. And in Utah, it may be because of the predominant religion that allows people to have an, an instant trust extended to them that then they take advantage of and exploit. That's a, that's a challenge. And so with Stop Fraud Initiative, together, we hope to educate the public and educate investors on uh, recognizing the signs. There are red flags out there. And sometimes investors ignore them, hoping for the best or or trusting that smile on the fraudster's face. Uh, sometimes it's too good to be true, and we need to take those flags for what they are and run the other way when people approach us and, uh, and our gift of fear kicks in. So serious is the problem of affinity fraud in Utah that in 2015 the state legislature passed a law establishing an online white-collar crime registry, similar to sex offender registries, which publishes the names, photographs and criminal details of individuals convicted of financial fraud crimes in the state going back a decade. Currently, there are 231 individuals listed on the registry. In addition, a collaboration between federal, state and local law enforcement partners has resulted in the Stop Fraud Utah campaign, which aims to educate the public about affinity fraud, what people can do to avoid it, and how best to report it if they have been victimised. Quote, Within the Mormon population, there is a well-known sense of trust, close quote, said Special Agent Michael Pickett, a veteran white-collar crime investigator in the FBI's Salt Lake City Division. Quote, Unfortunately, that trust can sometimes take the place of due diligence. And that's when individuals are more susceptible to being victimised, close quote. Affinity fraudsters are expert manipulators. Quote, they are great salesmen, Pickett explained. They will approach members of their social or religious circle with a promising investment opportunity, one that pays a high rate of return, and then use a variety of high-pressure tactics to get their victims' money. Pickett described some of the fraudsters' ploys. Quote, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You don't want to be the one that... Sorry, I'm just laughing because the church has brought up 
over $2 billion of Amazon shares with tithing. Anyway, where were we? You don't... <laughs> You don't want to be the one who passed up buying Amazon when it was first offered. You don't want to be the one that blows that opportunity, but you have to do it now. If you wait, the opportunity is gone. And by the way, you are one of the few people I'm making this offer to, so let's just keep it between ourselves, close quote. Quote, this type of fraud is significant, Pickett said. Within the Utah area, we're investigating more than $2 billion worth of fraud. In the last four months, we've opened 10 new cases, close quote. He added that Utah consistently ranks among the top five states for the FBI's most significant white-collar crime cases. Close quotes from the website. Michael Pickett is supervisor of the white-collar crime squad in the FBI's Salt Lake City office. We use the term the, these individuals or these, these perpetrators are wolves in sheep's clothing, right? They are great salesmen. They will come with a, a plan on how to solicit investors. And part of that plan is, will be they want to prey on the fears of those potential victims. Identify what those fears are and then begin to prey on them. And with that, they will pressure them. This is once in a lifetime opportunity. You don't want to be the one who passed up buying Amazon when it was first beginning or Walmart in its initial stages. You don't want to be the one that blows that opportunity once in a lifetime, but you have to do it now. If you wait, this opportunity is gone. And by the way, you're one of the few that I'm actually offering this offer to. So they, they, they will use these high pressure tactics. And if someone does not do due diligence, um, for example, one of the things is you got to make a decision now but we want to be quiet. It's, it's kind of a secret. I'm not offering this to everyone. Therefore, if you don't go out and talk about it, a lot of times common sense goes out the door. Uh, a key to this is communication. If someone is getting these high-pressure sales tactics, go talk to a neighbor. Go talk to another family member. Let them help you see what's going on. Now, I'm not saying all investment is fraud, right? But by talking to someone else, you'll be able to get a little bit more common sense into the equation to be identified potentially what are the high-pressure sales tactics and separate truth versus fiction. Richard Best is the Regional Director of the Securities and Exchange Commission's Salt Lake office. Understand what you're investing in. It's just like any other product. If you're going to buy something, understand what you're buying. And make sure that if you have a question, if you don't understand it, or if there's something that just doesn't seem right, feel free to pick up the phone and call your local regulator and ask them, hey, listen, I have this investment. I've been told about this opportunity. What can you tell me about it? And then also, what can you tell me about this individual who's asking me to invest? Even if that regulator doesn't cover that particular investment, very likely they're going to point you in the right direction so you can find out more information before you invest. Be an informed consumer. That is my message. The consequences for the victims of these crimes are huge. But what I and dozens of other podcasters and TikTokers and thousands of once trusting Latter-day Saints are trying to address with the same commitment as these law enforcement officers is the epic scale of religious fraud going on for all the same reasons and using exactly the same manipulative techniques.
Agent Pickett mentioned $2 billion worth of affinity fraud in Utah each year. Ironically, that is pretty much how much surplus tithing and fast offering donations the church takes every year on entirely false religious pretenses and invests in the ballooning Ensign Peak stocks and property investment portfolios while pretending it is being spent on the church, the needy and securing the church's future. Even though Jesus strictly forbade hoarding money, laying up treasures on earth where moth and rust or stock market crashes will destroy them before they ever help anyone in need. He taught that where you put your money indicates where your heart is. Jesus taught that we should not take any thought for tomorrow, just prioritise the needs of the present moment and the poor around us, and God will make things work out in the future. The general authorities justifying the vast fortune of money hoarding keep insisting this is sensible and wise to keep the church safe in the future, indicating that they have no faith at all that God will provide, and no faith in their own members to step up and provide more if needed in a crisis. They have already proven twice in 2008 and during COVID in 2020 and 2021 that they don't break open these storehouses in the lean years. Instead, they cut budgets, closed missionary training centres and charged missionaries far more to serve when secular costs went up during those two recent global financial slumps. While their investments made tens of billions of dollars in profit during COVID. They keep describing the church's work as not profit making, so why on earth should a secular financial crisis mean they have to charge church members more money to serve as free labour? They aren't a business losing money and needing to raise prices to survive. I simply don't understand how that kind of thinking can even be a thing in a church that should ultimately believe the kingdom of God lives in the hearts of its people and often declares that the real wealth of the church is its members, not its investments. A global financial crisis should make almost no difference at all in a religion that has already paid for all of its buildings and has a mostly unsalaried workforce and still has billions of dollars coming in from them and the investments every month. But they think and behave like the corporate capitalist business managers most of them are and react to a slump in the stock market like a capitalist enterprise would, when they are already the richest religion per capita in the world. It is these irrational car crashes between logic and what they teach and do, or different contradictory ingredients of what they teach and do, that massively discredit the church to a huge percentage of members and potential members who do the kind of due diligence the FBI professionals recommend. And it is not just literal money the church members are being defrauded of when the poor were never meant to pay tithing ever according to the church's own scriptures and official policies. And no one should be expected to pay it now Joseph F. Smith's solemn promise in October 1909 General Conference that all donation would cease 
when the church could run off the profits of its investments, which it can, while still having surplus billions to reinvest now. A promise quoted in the Joseph F. Smith study guide for all the adults in the church in 2000 and 2001. We are also being defrauded of huge amounts of futile, busy work, unpaid labour, serving as missionaries, which you actually have to give the church additional money it doesn't need to do, and all the other callings, cleaning chapels after they fired the janitors, and expenses expected of faithful members in return for their temple recommends guaranteeing exaltation. I have covered the whole colonial system of financial exploitation and corruption the church operates in more detail in episodes 5a, b and c. Why are they being defrauded religiously though? If they want to give the church more money, why can't they give their resources and time like they covenanted to in the temple endowment to build the kingdom of God and spread the LDS gospel to the world? My answer is because they are still being lied to, a lot, about every aspect of what it is they think they are giving all that devotion and time and resources and trust to. Doctrinally, culturally, intellectually, socially, emotionally. As I've been documenting in forensic detail along with all the other journalists, podcasters, academics and individual researchers. And also, it is my opinion that the general authorities are running a massive affinity fraud because while ordinary active members scurry around constantly anxious and guilt-ridden and frantic to be good enough and make their spouses and children good enough for the great promises they have been given for the next life in return for unquestioning and exact obedience to the church's prophets and apostles, those same general authorities are stabbing them in the back. They are pointing a flamethrower of ignorance and bigotries at the temple-worthy extended families we've been toiling so hard to try and build up and hold together, and burning them all to the ground. Most of our children leave. Many of our friends and peers have left. Many of our spouses have left. The young missionaries have increasingly stopped coming to keep our congregations alive in the constant costly war of attrition, and clowns like Dallin Oaks and Brad Wilcox and all the rest are offering totally inadequate reasoning and justifications for staying and sending the church's young people into a brutal marketplace or war zone of ideas in which they will quickly find they are defenceless and just how negligently they were set up by almost everything these leaders are doing and teaching them to fail, hard, at great personal cost. And the uncomfortable truth is that nearly all of us who have served full-time missions or participated in converting or fellowshipping someone to become a Latter-day Saint have used exactly the same manipulative techniques of high-pressure commercial salespeople and affinity fraudsters to manipulate them and keep them away from full disclosure about what our church believes and does or its messy history before they commit their lives and resources to it. There is a lot of guilt there for nuanced and post-Mormons to process. At the recent UK Thrive event in Chester, 
The most powerful experience for me and a lot of other people there was hearing men who have served as senior priesthood leaders like bishops and state presidency members talking for the first time about the incredible guilt they carry for how they manipulated people they were ministering to. They agonise about how often they did real harm in the advice they gave as if from God because they had no professional training in counselling or safeguarding or psychology and were taking everything the church leaders said at the time as the ultimate truth and safest ways to respond to every situation and crisis in people's lives and how it overwhelmed and drowned out their own common sense or compassion or secular professional and personal lived experience. They were applying elementary school oversimplifications to university-level complex problems, just like Brad and the leaders like him do. Listen again to these three experienced experts, and imagine this time they are simply talking about how the LDS Church and its members and missionaries persuade people to join it. It might be uncomfortable, but something of a game-changer for you as you recognise how much of this has been completely normalised or presented as virtuous in our officially prescribed and encouraged practices and culture. We form relationships of trust and when someone starts speaking like we speak or they act like we act, there's almost an instant trust that is extended to them. And so in Utah we see this affinity fraud, people who exploit their relationships with others to, to take advantage of them. We see that in Utah. And in Utah it may be because of the predominant religion that allows people to have an, an instant trust extended to them that then they take advantage of and exploit. That's a, that's a challenge. And so with Stop Fraud Initiative together, we hope to educate the public and educate investors on uh, recognizing the signs. There are red flags out there and sometimes investors ignore them hoping for the best or, or trusting that smile on the fraudster's face. Uh, sometimes it's too good to be true and we need to take those flags for what they are and run the other way when people approach us and, uh, and our gift of fear kicks in. We use the term the, these individuals or these these perpetrators are wolves in sheep's clothing, right? They are great salesmen. They will come with a, a plan on how to solicit investors. And part of that plan is will be they want to prey on the fears of those potential victims. Identify what those fears are and then begin to prey on them. And with that, they will pressure them. This is once in a lifetime opportunity. You don't want to be the one who passed up buying Amazon when it was first beginning or Walmart in its initial stages. You don't want to be the one that blows that opportunity once in a lifetime, but you have to do it now. If you wait, this opportunity is gone. And by the way, you're one of the few that I'm actually offering this offer to. So they, they, they will use these high pressure tactics. And if someone does not do due diligence, um, for example, one of the things is you got to make a decision now but we want to be quiet. It's, it's kind of a secret. I'm not offering this to everyone. Therefore, if you don't go out and talk about it, a lot of times common sense goes out the door. Uh, a key to this is communication. If someone is getting these high pressure sales tactics, go talk to a neighbor. 
Go talk to another family member. Let them help you see what's going on. Now, I'm not saying all investment is fraud, right? But by talking to someone else, you'll be able to get a little bit more common sense into the equation to be identified potentially what are the high pressure sales tactics and separate truth versus fiction. Understand what you're investing in. It's just like any other product. If you're gonna buy something, understand what you're buying. And make sure that if you have a question, if you don't understand it, or if there's something that just doesn't seem right, feel free to pick up the phone and call your local regulator and ask them, hey, listen, I have this investment. I've been told about this opportunity. What can you tell me about it? And then also, what can you tell me about this individual who's asking me to invest? Even if that regulator doesn't cover that particular investment, very likely they're going to point you in the right direction so you can find out more information before you invest. Be an informed consumer. That is my message. This is what Latter-day Saints in trust crisis, re-evaluating everything they have experienced in the church, are seeing and hearing when Brad Wilcox and the First Presidency members and countless other church members and leaders are speaking to persuade. The next two major youth-speaking superstars have been much nicer human beings after the Paul H. Dunn debacle that insanely some members have still not even heard about. I kid you not. My elders quorum teacher, who should know better, last year recited an entire, totally inaccurate Paul H. Dunn story as part of his lesson. I couldn't believe what I was witnessing. I'm certain he knows about Paul H. Dunn's sins and crimes, but he still decided, while in full flow, that it was more important to tell a faith-promoting story for emotional manipulative effect than to be honest because the ends justify dishonest means, far too much in acceptable LDS culture. The man of the hour for my children's generation in the 1990s was adorable John By The Way, and his talk CDs still appear all over the place in many a Mormon family's media boxes and cupboards and car cubby holes. And cuddly puppy Brad Wilcox became the engaging youth speaker for our grandchildren's generation. So the First Presidency quickly promoted him to the Young Men General Presidency. In many ways, I really like Brad. I think he is a fantastically naive but harmless elementary school teacher. And as a professional high school teacher, I'd trust him to do a great job teaching children in that role. At that age, children primarily need to be engaged in being excited and curious about their existence and the world around them and have great storytellers sharing and encouraging their excitement about discovering it all in simple ways. Leave me. Okay. I adore you, my love. <laughs> Don't leave me, darling. <laughs> oh, I'm nearly finished. Thank you. Mm -hmm. But where he is now, he is totally out of his depth and floundering, and has sadly been corrupted by the overclaiming culture and self-certainty without fact-checking of his general authority colleagues. He is a lazy researcher, getting overexcited about random magazine articles and memes, and jumping to inaccurate conclusions about them. 
In the previous episode, we discovered he flagrantly lied to the Sunderland England stake about two specific pieces of research, one of which he claimed proved that the university students of the world desperately need the message of grace and a God who loves and forgives them as they are, that the LDS Church offers them to free them from psychologically harmful, anxious perfectionism and self-loathing and depression when in fact the research only interviewed LDS students, and the First Presidency constantly prioritises anxious perfectionism over grace, and makes the LDS Church a major cause of these things rather than the solution for them. We need to get our own act together on that front before having the nerve to think we can be good examples of religious mental health to everyone else in the world and he shamelessly lied about Pew Research, which he said proved that only religious believers stay nice in a crisis, and you cannot trust unbelievers not to walk all over you for their own selfish goals in a crisis like a pandemic, when that is obvious nonsense, because we all know plenty of atheists who are just as persistently decent and compassionate as any believers and the actual research he referenced was just asking people their opinions about whether religiosity makes you more ethical, not offering any proof at all. So Brad is a tragicomic character, tripping up on his own naivety, and paying the price we all have for the church's institutional failures, promoting people like him far beyond their ability to actually deliver and cope with the jobs they have. I don't think he is an evil, scheming, cynical manipulator, as far as we know, like Paul H. Dunn was. But whatever his motivations, the result is sadly just as harmful. The kids are still being taught lies as truth and particularly by Brad's and the general authority role models he imitates, being taught a completely inaccurate world view, that everyone and everything in the LDS church is safe and trustworthy, and everything outside it is dangerous and untrustworthy. So they are being set up by him for every kind of financial or religious affinity fraud going. Brad is not alone and he is hardly unusual. The entire membership of the church has been set up with the same worldview, and all its self-sabotaging errors, as he has and every congregation of the rapidly shrinking church, has plenty of pew-sitters, teachers and leaders who think and teach just like him. Fatally disconnected from a mental habit of cautious scepticism, and fact-checking to keep them and what they do realistic and honest. At a time when if the church is to survive the next decade or two at all, it needs the most ruthlessly realistic, self-aware and highly informed leaders we can possibly muster to move decisively to enact the radical reforms in practice and rhetoric that will be necessary for survival. Meanwhile, though, the local and global church is paralysed. As Special Agent Pickett puts it, quote, Within the Mormon population, there is a well-known sense of trust. Unfortunately, that trust can sometimes take the place of due diligence. 
And that's when individuals are more susceptible to being victimised, close quote. Due diligence, people. Do some due diligence. Actually talk to the people who have left about why. Research the leader's truth claims. One of the most important ideas I want to offer the LDS community in this podcast, so forgive me for repeating it if you've heard it before, is that Mormonism itself already has nearly all the solutions to all these problems I'm identifying and discussing. We don't have to give up on this religion or go outside it for the answers, because there is an ethical and sensible and realistically practical Christian Mormonism trapped in there somewhere still if we can disentangle it from the Pharisee Mormon religion. In contrast to the thought-stopping, anti-intellectual, control-freak madness of claiming that LDS apostles and prophets are infallible when they teach doctrine and now policies, we are taught in LDS Mormonism six criteria or tests or filters to apply before accepting something the leaders teach as probably inspired by God. Number one, does it make rational sense? Number two, does it make emotional sense, coming from a place of empathy and compassion for other humans, especially the most different to the mainstream and vulnerable ones? Number three, is it compatible with the scriptures? Number four, does God give you a spiritual witness that this is a true idea from him? Number five, is it something taught consistently by all the 15 apostles, not just a couple of mavericks or extremists among them? And number six, has it been presented to the entire membership of the church for a common consent vote, authorising it? And did a majority of members vote in favour of it, like they did for ending the racist segregation in 1978? If there is a radical new step to take, or change to make, engaging with the members and restoring their common consent rights and powers will speed it up. We already have the mental and institutional solutions to all our self-destructive problems if we just actually teach and practice them. I have spoken many times about how my previous ward, Welling, which is older than the church in Utah, still doesn't have a chapel to meet in, but the church just spent £103 million purchasing a gleaming office block 20 minutes up the road from it in central London as a commercial investment, while its dwindling membership live out of a cupboard in a hired school. I've spoken about how my current ward, after being battered by having its serving bishop convicted and imprisoned for child pornography offences, is down to around 30 people at the most attending, after being thrown a lifeline by a boundary change, but doomed because most of the once thriving youth and young adults have gone. These are the tangible, real-life consequences of how my people, in my country, just like the rest of Europe and most of the rest of the LDS world, have been betrayed by the incompetent leaders literally teaching the religion of Lucifer and the Pharisees rather than Jesus, and failing to be functionally competent in everything from child safeguarding to missionary strategies. 
In the next episode, 10D, we will continue using Brad's teaching to the Sunderland Stake as a format for deeper exploration of the ideas battling it out within LDS Mormonism. We will watch one of the modern church's most blatant acts of censorship and deception in actual 1984 that just had a mini encore with Susan Bednar's husband a couple of weeks ago. We will behold the flip-flopping of Elder Ballard on how to handle the true history of the church that was the straw that broke my back already carrying a mountain of concerns about what the current leaders are doing and radicalised me to step up and speak publicly about them in my Facebook page and then this podcast. I will introduce you to two awesome podcasters tackling all this brilliantly you may not have heard of. One is finishing her years-long podcast series and the other is just starting hers and they have a load of wisdom and insight to share. So I'm excited for you to hear some of it and check them out if you haven't done so already. And in the following episodes, we will find out how Brad blundered into becoming the Exhibit A of LDS sexism and racism in 2022, and how the attempt to rehabilitate him revealed a load of inept mental gymnastics around the church's 150 years of racist segregation that made it all far worse. Maybe we're asking the wrong question.